Welcome to Diving Deep, part of the Fixing Healthcare podcast series. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Core, also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of topics, you can visit his website, robertpearlmd.com. Robbie, on a recent podcast, we discussed the growing unaffordability of American healthcare. Several readers wrote asking you to expand on our previous conversation about drug company pricing. What can you tell them? Jeremy, as you know, the growing unaffordability of medications has come under congressional spotlight and scrutiny over the past year. The passage of the Inflation Reduction Act gave the federal government the right to negotiate prices for 10 drugs starting in 2026. And the pushback by pharmaceutical companies has been massive since then, indicating how valuable the prohibition that was put in place 20 years ago remains today to drug company profitability. As I listen to their attacks on the legislation, I'm reminded of the illusions that magicians rely on to deceive audiences. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Sure, Jeremy. Magicians know that the key to a convincing trick is misdirection and the art of deception. They instruct you to follow their left hand so that you'll ignore their right, which is subtly palming a ball or pulling an ace from the sleeve. The art of illusion, it hinges on the magician's ability to divert attention from where the real action is happening. And therefore, every illusion contains a truth, a secret that's hidden from view. How does that relate to the drug industry? Jeremy, the U.S. biopharmaceutical industry uses similar deceptive approaches in response to the possibility that the government will once again have the right to negotiate lower prices for drugs. The industry's sleight of hand is designed to distract attention away from the massive profitability that it, that it currently has and hide important truths about how much our country really spends on research and development and the impact that lower prices would really have on patient care. Let's start off with the final point. I've heard that lower prices would prevent a large number of life-saving drugs from being discovered and manufactured for patients. What are the facts? Jeremy, let me begin by praising the scientists and researchers who have dedicated their lives to achieving breakthroughs in healthcare in the past. Their work, it's no illusion. Drug research and development has for decades gifted humanity with medical wonders, including antibiotics, statins, cancer therapies, HIV, AIDS treatments, and COVID-19 vaccines, to name just a few. And the scientists doing the work in the field, they continue to be outstanding. But when it comes to the drug companies themselves, profitability appears to be more important than the number of lives saved. Over the past 20 years, drug companies have embraced exorbitant pricing as their primary 
business strategy. And it's been effective. They've generated more than $81.9 billion in profits. And that's just among the five largest pharma companies. This is why Congress took the steps it did in passing the Inflation Reduction Act. Researchers estimate the drug pricing provisions in the law that will reduce the federal deficit by $237 billion over 10 years. I can see why that would be threatening to the pharmaceutical companies. What did the drug industry do in response? The pharmaceutical sector immediately filed a bevy of lawsuits trying to create the illusion that reduced drug industry profits would destroy R&D innovation and, as a result, harm millions of patients. But, of course, once you peel away the veneer and understand the hidden trick beneath the illusion, what you discover is very different. The trick of convincing people that carnage will result, that's a complex illusion. It requires three simultaneous sleights of hand to sell it. But combined, they work to distract Americans. And they present a story that contradicts the actual data and facts. Let's take the three sleights of hand at one time. What's first? Jeremy, first, Contrary to what drug companies want you to see, an overwhelming percentage of the exorbitant drug prices, that gets channeled into corporate profits, not into R&D. Over the past 18 years, biopharma companies have earned an average gross margin and gross profit margin of 77%. That's 39% higher than the rest of the S&P 500. And driving this profitability, with 20% annual price increases for drugs between the years 2008 and 2021. By contrast, overall inflation rates for that same period, they range from only 0.2% to 6.7%. And the next slide of hand? Second, independent research for the Congressional Budget Office concludes the impact of price constraints on drug discovery, it would be minimal not massive. The CBO finds that reducing pharmaceutical revenues as a result of the Drug Inflation Act would result in one less drug. That's one less drug being developed over the next decade and a total of 1% fewer medications being manufactured over the next 30 years. Jeremy, that's a far cry from the disaster the drug industry would like people to fear. And what about the final deception? The third and most pernicious part of the illusion is talking about future lives lost as a means of getting people to ignore how many Americans today are already being harmed, not by a lack of research and development, but by the unaffordability of life essential medications. Jeremy, let me give you one example. Prices for insulin this life-saving medication, they've tripled over the past decade. As a result of ever greater unaffordability, researchers from Yale found that 25%, that's one-fourth of children with type 1 diabetes, that's the lethal form, are now being given lower doses by their parents than their physicians recommend. Today, nearly one in four Americans on prescription drugs report difficulty affording their medications. This is the hidden truth. Exorbitant 
pharmaceutical prices kill far more Americans today than the supposed loss of R&D ever would. Rather than being a path to harm, this legislation will be life-saving for tens of thousands of individuals. I understand the trick of making people conflate lower prices with lives lost. What's the second trick? Have you convinced people that higher prices are positive rather than negative and, and have gotten them to see or believe that exorbitant costs are necessary to save lives? The next trick builds on the first one. It goes like this. The United States alone must shoulder the burden of high drug prices. If they don't do it, no one will. Now, it's accurate that the United States today does bear nearly all of the burden. Currently, Americans pay 2.4 times more for identical medications than pure nations and 3.4 times more when those drugs are brand names. In total, Americans spend nearly double per capita on prescription drugs than in comparable countries. We spend $1,126, and in pure nations, they only spend 552 How did the U.S. get into this situation? Jeremy, much of this disparity dates to 2003, when Congress and President Bush were wanting to expand Medicare to include a drug benefit. Before that, the cost of medications had to be paid by enrollees out of pocket. Drug companies saw a great opportunity and potential threat in this plan. They supported expanded coverage, but they lobbied Congress to include in the legislation a law preventing the U.S. government from negotiating drug prices, even for the beneficiaries that they pay for the care, including Medicare and Medicaid. Since then, without any drug reg regulations in place, drug companies have pushed the boundaries of high prices. Over the past two years, half of all new medications have come on the market with an initial price above $150,000, with several topping $1 million per patient. In contrast, outside of the United States, excessively high and exorbitant drug prices are a rarity. Can you give an example of this price disparity? Happy to, Jeremy. Let's look at the new GLP-1 inhibitors that we discussed in a previous Diving Deep podcast. Ozempic is an example. It's a diabetes drug. It helps people lose significant weight while also avoiding heart attacks. A month's supply of this highly effective drug, it costs $936 in the United States. And that's around $11,000 per year. In Japan, the same drug sells for $169 a month. And it's just $93 in the United Kingdom, $87 in Australia, and $83 in France. In total, people in other countries are charged around $1,000 a year for these medications. And that's less than 10% of what Americans must pay. And the reason the medications are affordable elsewhere, it's just basic economics. Each of these countries negotiates prices and caps drug maker profits. It's not that any of the companies who manufacture these medications are being forced to sell them below cost. It's just that they're restrained from setting exorbitant and unjustified prices. That price differential is disturbing. What would happen if the United States adopted the same approach as these other nations and made medications in the U.S. equally or, and made medications in the U.S. equally affordable? 
Jeremy, if our nation adopted the same pricing regulations as France or Australia, we could prescribe Ozempic to every overweight and obese American at an affordable cost. And that would solve the obesity epidemic. It would save tens of thousands of lives each year. The pharmaceutical industry likes to talk about how paying for these weight loss drugs would prevent disease and lower costs. And they're right. It would do so, diminishing medical expenses, as we said, by over $270 billion in the next 10 years. But what they never point out is that under current U.S. law and the retail prices being $11,000 per year or even more, that the total drug spend would go up by $1.5 trillion per year in the United States. And as such, when you calculate the net impact, treating everyone with obesity using Ozempic or another GLP-1 inhibitor, it actually would raise overall healthcare costs. And I don't mean by a little, it would raise these costs, the total U.S. healthcare costs by 25%. And it would increase the national debt by $1.2 trillion annually. What's the secret behind this trick that makes this deception possible? Underlying the illusion is an implied assumption that drug prices are non-negotiable in other countries. But of course, there's nothing that prohibits American companies from negotiating with these governments. Drug companies don't want Americans to see this. Once people believe that other nations are prohibited from paying more for the medications they purchase, then the logical conclusion is that reduced revenues from the United States would kill patients and that the United States must bear the full weight of global R&D investments. In the lawsuits that the drug companies have filed against the Inflation Reduction Act, they've made it sound as though were this legislation to become law, it would force by the U.S. government to sell medications at a loss. The reality is drug companies could choose not to do so. They could decide not to participate. And similarly, American drug companies could play hardball with governments and other peer nations. They could refuse to sell their drugs unless a more equitable global pricing structure would, could be reached. But why would they make such a fuss as long as they can simply stick Americans with the bill and get away with it? What's trick number three? Jeremy, this final illusion is based on the fact that when it comes to purchasing prescription drugs, people are actually talking about two different prices. First, there's the very high retail price that drug companies charge insurers, self-funded businesses, and patients who don't have medical coverage. And then there's, second, the much smaller amount that insurers require patients to pay when they pick up their medications. These are the so-called out-of-pocket expenses. And since out-of-pocket costs are a small fraction of the total drug expense, pharmaceutical companies try to get Americans to focus on those dollars rather than recognize the massive dollars that are reimbursed to payers. To make this trick work, the drug industry needs a deception. It requires that Americans believe at the money that the government and businesses pay for ever more expensive pharmaceutical coverage, that that's free for the people receiving the treatment. 
and nothing could be further from the truth. What do you mean? The reality is that workers and taxpayers are the ones who end up paying the price for these expensive medications. And this happens in two ways. First, workers earn less pay as healthcare benefits and costs rise. That's because employers treat wages and benefit costs as one line item. Therefore, as insurance and drug prices rise, the raises workers receive disappear. Their salaries stagnate. And that's been the reality for most workers across this country for the past 20 years. If medical costs had increased at a slower rate, take-home pay for workers would be much higher today. And second, for people covered through government programs like Medicare or Medicaid, higher drug prices either are funded by taxpayers or funded through cutbacks in other programs, including school funding and public safety. Jeremy, deception and misdirection, they can be sources of wonder at magic shows, but illusions in healthcare, they always prove to be disturbing, dangerous, and deadly. And unfortunately, there are dozens of them in the U.S. today beyond the pharmaceutical world. The result is that in total, American medical care costs nearly twice as much as in all other countries, while our outcomes lag the other 11 peer nations studied annually by the not-for-profit Commonwealth Fund. Any way you measure it, Americans are not getting the value they deserve for the dollars they're spending. Another area of interest for folks remains chat GPT and other generative AI applications. A listener asks, I've heard for the last decade how AI was going to transform American healthcare. So far, it has had minimal impact. She wants to know why this time it'll be different. Jeremy, I concur with her that artificial intelligence has long been heralded as an emerging force in medicine. Since the 2000s, promises of a technological transformation in healthcare have echoed through the halls of hospitals and at national meetings. But outside of a few areas like radiology and predictive analytics, I concur with our listener that there's not much to show. As such, I understand her skepticism. But I think this time will be different because generative AI is unlike any technology that has come before it. Before I explain the superiority of generative AI, I must point out that my opinion isn't based upon the generative AI products that currently exist. As good as they are, they're toys compared to what will be here in five to 10 years. Remember that the applications are becoming twice as powerful every year, which means it will be 30 times better in five years and a thousand times more powerful in 10. ChatGPT and other generative AI tools from Google, Microsoft, and Amazon, these are large language models already well-suited to the writing of emails and completing term papers. But that's, it's just a tiny first step. Once these applications are 30 times more effective, they will be invaluable and essential tools for patients in pursuit of the best medical care possible. Robbie, that's a bold prediction. Where should we start to unpack it? Jeremy, to understand how generative AI will transform healthcare, empower patients, and redefine the doctor-patient relationship, we first need to start by discussing the massive differences between generative AI and prior artificial intelligence. And with that as a background, it's clear how for the first time in history, a technological innovation will democratize not just medical knowledge, but also clinical expertise. It will make medical prowess no longer the sole domain of healthcare professionals. 
Sounds like a plan. I suggest we start with the earliest days of AI. Can you explain what the first generation of AI looked like? The latter half of the 20th century ushered in the first generation of artificial intelligence. It was known as rule-based AI. Programmed by computer engineers, this type of AI relied on a series of human-generated instructions. These were the rules which enabled technology to solve basic problems. In many ways, the rule-based approach it resembles a traditional medical school curriculum where medical students are taught hundreds of algorithms that help them translate a patient's symptoms into a diagnosis. These heuristics, rules of thumb, they allow doctors to begin with a patient's symptoms and reach a diagnosis with a moderate amount of certainty. Can you provide an example of what you mean? Leaders can visualize and think about these decision-making algorithms as upside-down trees. At the top, there are these big tree trunks. This is the patient's chief complaint. And as you move down, there's a series of branch points with two alternatives becoming four and four becoming eight, eight to 16, and so forth. For example, if a patient complains of a severe cough, the doctor first assesses whether there's fever present or not. If it's yes, the doctor moves to one set of questions, and if not, to a different set. Assuming the patient has been febrile, the next question is whether the patient's sputum is normal or discolored. If it's discolored, the next set of questions focus on infectious agents like bacteria that could be responsible. But if not, the questioning moves to systemic diseases, which are associated with an elevated body temperature. This process of branching continues until ultimately there are end branches, each with each of which contains only a single diagnosis. But along the way, 50 different medical conditions, including bacterial, fungal, and viral pneumonia, cancer, heart failure, and dozens of pulmonary diseases would be considered based upon this one fact that the patients had a severe cough. Were rule-based AI applications any good? Jeremy, yes, they were good compared to what existed previously. This first generation of AI could rapidly process data, sort quickly through the entire branching tree, and in circumstances where the algorithm could accurately account for all possibilities, all possible outcomes, rule-based AI proved more efficient than doctors. But patient problems are rarely so easy to analyze and categorize. Often it's difficult to separate one set of diseases from another at each branch point. As a result, this earliest form of AI wasn't it as accurate as doctors combined medical science with their own intuition and experiences. As a result of these limitations, rule-based AI was rarely used in clinical practice. What's the second generation of artificial intelligence? Jeremy, the second generation of AI is usually referred to as narrow AI. It became more than research effort as the 21st century dawned. The second generation was spawned by advances in biology and a more detailed understanding of how the human brain works. In the second era, computer architects introduced neural networks, mimicking the structure of the brain and paving the way for deep learning. Narrow AI functioned very differently than its predecessors. Rather than researchers providing predefined rules, the second generation feasted on massive data sets using them to discern patterns that the human mind alone could not. Narrow AI is the foundation of facial recognition software. 
and it provided the power which allowed computers to defeat chess masters like Garry Kasparov at their own game. Can you give an example of how narrow AI has been used in medicine? In one example, researchers gave narrow AI systems thousands of mammograms, half showing malignant cancer and half benign. The model was used to quickly identify dozens of differences in the shape, the density, the shade of the radiological images. It assigned impact factors to each of these differences that reflected the probability of malignancy. Importantly, this kind of AI wasn't relying on heuristics, these few rules of thumb, the way that humans do, but instead subtle variations between the malignant and normal exams that neither the radiologists nor software designers even knew existed. In contrast to rule-based AI, these narrow tools provided superior outcomes compared to the doctor's intuition and higher diagnostic accuracy. And more than 200 such narrow AI applications have already been approved by the FDA. But despite the triumphs, the uses for narrow AI in medical practice, they remain very limited. One reason is that each application is task-specific. Consequently, a system trained to read mammograms can't interpret brain scans or chest x-rays. But a bigger problem is that narrow AI can only be as good as the data on which it's trained. And most often in medicine, the data is flawed. What do you mean by that? Jeremy, a glaring example of that weakness emerged when United Healthcare relied on narrow AI to identify its sickest patients and give them additional healthcare services. And filtering through the data, researchers later discovered that the AI application had made a fatal assumption. Patients who received less medical care were categorized as healthier than patients who received more. And in doing so, AI failed to recognize that less treatment is not always the result of better health. Poor medical care can also be the result of implicit human bias. Indeed, when researchers went back and reviewed the outcomes, they found that black patients were significantly undertreated compared to white patients. And as a result, they were underrepresented in the group selected for additional medical services. The media headlines, they proclaimed healthcare algorithms have racial bias, but it wasn't the algorithm that discriminated against black patients. It was the result of physicians in their day-to-day -day practice, providing black patients with insufficient and inequitable treatment. In other words, the problem was the humans, not the narrow AI. That takes us to the current AI generation. What can you tell listeners about generative AI? Jeremy, now that we understand past generations, it's easy to see the numerous advantages that generative AI offers. Let's put this next generation of AI into context. Throughout history, technology has transformed society by democratizing knowledge, making information easier to access for everyone, not just the wealthy elite. Examples of this new technology that dem democratized knowledge, things like printing press, the internet, the iPhone, billions of people worldwide can now obtain knowledge that previously had been available only to the elite few. Generative AI accomplished the same leap forward in access to information, but it also is poised to go one step further and give every individual access to expertise as well. 
and the difference between information and expertise is massive. Why do you say that? Jeremy, consider the following examples. Already the latest AI tools allow users to create stunning works of art in the style of Rembrandt without ever having taken a painting, painting class. With large language models, people can record a hit song, even if they've never played a musical instrument. And individuals can write computer code, producing sophisticated websites and apps, despite never having enrolled in an IT course. None of these works of art, music, or code could be accomplished by Googling the topic, clicking on links, or opening YouTube. In contrast, with a few keystrokes today and voice recognition tomorrow, Generative AI technology offers the opportunity to convert users into experts. How will that translate into healthcare? Jeremy, future generations of generative AI, once connected to the electronic medical record and to a variety of wearable devices, will do the same for medicine. It will allow people who never attended medical school to diagnose diseases and make and create treatment plans as sophisticated as any clinician can. Already one generative AI tool, Google's MedPalm2, passed the physician licensing exam with an expert level score. Another generative AI tool responded to patient questions with advice that bested doctors both in accuracy and empathy. And a third wrote medical notes indistinguishable from the entries that physicians create and it proved to be more accurate than average doctors at diagnosing and coming up with treatment plans for complex diseases. How soon will this be possible? Jeremy, the answer is sooner than most people realize. Listeners should recognize that the current versions, they require physician oversight, and they're nowhere close to replacing doctors. Because we said earlier in the podcast, that doubling in power each year, and once they're 30 times better, they very well could be ready. And that is just 60 months away. And it's likely this rate of improvement will continue. The beauty of generative AI is how added power is created. Rather than demanding technological breakthroughs, improvements can be accomplished by continuing to provide more and more data to the application with which to work. And in medicine, the amount of information that can be provided, that's almost unlimited. Unlike their predecessors, these models aren't given a small number of rules to follow, and they don't require a specific data set with which to work. Instead, they're pre-trained on information that encompasses the near totality of publicly available material. And that includes just about everything on the internet, a lot of material from social media, and vast numbers of medical textbooks, journal articles, and open source platforms. And that means as new information is published, it too can be loaded into the application in the same way that first generations of generative AI were. And the information doesn't have to be general articles or books. Once these tools are securely connected to electronic health records and plugged into patient monitoring devices in people's homes and hospital beds, the clinical acumen of generative AI applications for personalized advice will skyrocket. What will the impact be on patients? Rather than obtaining general responses about their medical problems, patients can obtain personal answers to their medical questions. They can include an almost unlimited amount of information, things like genetic sequencing, environmental factors where people live, specifics of family history, 
and the most recent laboratory results. As a result, within the next five to 10 years, medical expertise will no longer be the sole domain of trained clinicians. Future generations of ChatGPT and its peers will put medical expertise in the hand of all Americans, wherever they are and whenever they want to learn. And that ability will radically alter the relationship between doctors and patients. Whether physicians embrace this development or resist it, obviously that's uncertain. But what's clear is that there currently exists massive opportunities for improvements in American medicine. Today, an estimated 400,000 people die annually from misdiagnoses. 250,000 die from medical errors. And 1.7 million die from preventable chronic diseases and the complications. Generative AI can remedy many of medicine's failures. And I believe that once these tools are available to patients, they will embrace them, regardless of what physicians or anyone else might want, and they will use them as empowered patients. This is all very exciting and honestly a little bit daunting. We are running out of time today, but on the next Diving Deep episode, let's pick up on this thread and talk about what this will mean for physicians and explore how the doctor-patient relationship can evolve positively. How does that sound? Jeremy, it sounds like a plan. But while listeners wait for that episode, I suggest they think about the future. Are they excited about the opportunity to become an empowered patient? Or do they prefer to continue to rely exclusively on doctors? And do they predict that a well-trained clinician will be as excellent as a tax-savvy physician working closely with an application? The answers to these and other questions will determine how listeners, how the American people would like the doctor-patient relationship to evolve. I can't wait to discuss it with you in our upcoming and next Diving Deep episode. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, diving deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.